0: Project Lawful, a.k.a. Plane Crash, by Yarwain, a.k.a. Eliezer Yudkowski, and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 75. Keltham will now, striding back and forth and rather widely gesturing, hold forth upon the central principle of all Dath Ilani project management, The ability to identify who is responsible for something. If there is not one person responsible for something, it means nobody is responsible for it. This is the proverb of Dathilani management. Are three people responsible for something? Maybe all three think somebody else was supposed to actually do it. Dathilani tend to try to invent clever new organizational forms, if not otherwise cautioned out of it. So among the things that you get warned about is that you never form a group of three people to be responsible for something. One person with two advisors can be responsible for something if more expertise is required than one person has. A majority vote of three people? No. You might think it works, but it doesn't. When is it time for them to stop arguing and vote? Whose job is it to say that the time has come to vote? Well, gosh... Now, nobody knows who's responsible for that meta decision either. Maybe all three of them think it's somebody else's job to decide when it's time to vote. The closest thing that Dathilan has to an effective organization which defies this principle is the nine legislators who stand at the peak of governance, voting with power proportional to what they receive from the layers of delegation beneath them. This is in no small part because Dathilan doesn't want governance to be overly effective and no private corporations or smaller elements of governance do that. The nine legislators, importantly, do not try to run projects or be at the top of the bureaucracy. There's a chief executive of governance who does that. They just debate and pass laws, which is not the same as needing to make real-time decisions in response to current events. Same with the Court of Final Settlement, of which all lower courts are theoretically a hierarchical prediction market. They rule on issues in slow time, they don't run projects. Even then, every single governance-level planet-wide law in Death Elan has some particular legislator sponsoring it. If anything goes wrong with that law, if it is producing stupid effects, there is a particular legislator to point to whose job it was to be the person who owned that law and was supposed to be making sure it didn't have any stupid effects. If you can't find a single particular legislator to sign off on ownership of a law, it doesn't get to be a law anymore. When a majority court produces an opinion, one person on the court takes responsibility for authoring that opinion. Every decision made by the executive branch of government or the executive structure of a standardly organized corporation is made by a single identifiable person. If the decision is a significant one, it is logged into a logging system and reviewed by that person's superior or manager. If you ask a question like, who hired this terrible person? There's one person who made the decision to hire them. If you ask, why wasn't this person fired? There's either an identifiable manager whose job it was to monitor this person and fire them if necessary, or your corporation simply doesn't have that functionality. Keltham is informed, though he doesn't think he's ever been tempted to make that mistake himself. That overthinky people setting up corporations sometimes ask themselves, But wait, what if this person here can't be trusted to make decisions all by themselves? What if they make the wrong decision? And then try to set up more complicated structures than that. This basically never works. If you don't trust a power, make that power legible. Make it localizable to a single person. Make sure every use of it gets logged and reviewed by somebody whose job it is to review it. If you make power complicated... It stops being legible and visible and recordable and accountable, and then you actually are in trouble. The basic sanity check on organizational structure is whether, once you've identified the person supposedly responsible for something, they then have the eyes and the fingers, the sensory inputs and motor outputs, to carry out their supposed function and optimize over this thing they are supposedly responsible for. Any time you have an event that should have been optimized, such as, for example, notifying Keltham that yet another god has been determined to have been messing with his project. There should be one person who is obviously responsible for that happening. That person needs to successfully be notified by the rest of the organization that Caden Kalian has been identified as meddling. That person needs the ability to send a message to Keltham.
1: Good job, real Cheliax. Bad job, fake Cheliax. Carissa's own fault analysis here, insofar as she's making herself think about it—which isn't all that much, because she's still not back at 100 percent—is that obviously it was her job, once the decision was made to bring Pilar back and once Pilar's authorized lies were settled on, to get those authorized lies conveyed to Keltham at the speed it would happen in Alter Chelyaks. It's really obvious why she didn't do this. It's because, as literally every authority she has talked to in the last 24 hours told her, she's not in fact fully recovered, not tracking everything, but it was still her job. Chelyax knows who has responsibility for figuring out what Keltham learns and when, and it's her. And in her absence, it's Mayol, and if he criticizes her for this, she'll criticize him right back, but the entire reason, well, most of the reason. She took his job was that she expected he'd miss things she wouldn't. So. This is a thing Carissa likes about Cheliacs. It is not a place that hesitates to assign responsibility. Right now, it's going to assign it to her, and that's going to suck. But that's how we get stronger. Unless punishment doesn't work. Asmodeus specifically instructed on Carissa's punishment and can be assumed to have had an aim in mind.
0: In companies large enough that they need regulations, every regulation has an owner. There is one person who is responsible for that regulation and who supposedly thinks it is a good idea and who could nope the regulation if it stopped making sense. If there's somebody who says, well, I couldn't do the obviously correct thing there, the regulation said otherwise, then, if that's actually true, You can identify the one single person who owned that regulation, and they are responsible for the output. Sane people writing rules like those for whose effects they can be held accountable. Write the ability for the person being regulated to throw an exception, which gets caught by an exception handler, if a regulation's output seems to obviously not make sane sense over a particular event. Anytime somebody has to literally break the rules to do a saner thing, That represents an absolute failure of organizational design. There should be explicit exceptions built in, and procedures for them. Exceptions, being explicit, get logged. They get reviewed. If all your bureaucrats are repeatedly marking that a particular rule seems to be producing nonsensical decisions, it gets noticed. The one single identifiable person who has ownership for that rule gets notified, because they have eyes on that and then they have the ability to optimize over it, like by modifying that rule. If they can't modify the rule, they don't have ownership of it, and somebody else is the real owner, and this person is one of their subordinates whose job it is to serve as the other person's eyes on the rule. Nobody seems to have responsibility for this important thing I'm looking at is another form of throwable exception, besides a regulation turning out to make no sense. A security, watching Keltham wander around, obviously not knowing things he's been cleared to know, but with nobody actually responsible for telling him, should throw a this bureaucratic situation about Keltham makes no sense exception. There should then be one identifiable person in the organization who is obviously responsible for that exception, who that exception is guaranteed to reach by previously designed aspects of the organization, and that person has the power to tell Keltham things or send a message to somebody who does. If the organizational design fails at doing that, this incident should be logged and visible to the single one, identifiable sole person who has ownership of the the actually-why-is-this-part-of-the-corporation-structured-like-this-anyways-is question. Yes, most of the command structure is at the Nadal front because of Galarian's stupid-ass correlation between management rank and combat potential. Keltham gets that. There are ways to design organizations to be robust to exceptional structural events like that. Death elani corporations consider how to operate in earthquakes, or if communications get cut by a massive solar weather event. Everything like that gets rehearsed at least a little, once a year during the annual Alien Invasion Rehearsal Festival. The central principle is that so long as the ability to identify who's now responsible for something can still function, the organization can still function. Chelyax's problem is not that the person whose job was to tell Keltham about Caden Kalian, is fighting Nadal. Chelyak's problem is not that this person's failover was also on the Nadal front. Chelyak's problem is that the question, well, who's responsible then? stopped without producing any answer at all. This literally never happens in a correctly designed organization. If you have absolutely no other idea of who is responsible, then the answer is that it is the job of Abigail Thrune. If you do not want to take the issue to Abigail Thrun, that means it gets taken to somebody else, who then has the authority to make that decision, the knowledge to make that decision, the eyes to see the information necessary for it, and the power to carry out that decision. Chelyak should have rehearsed this sort of thing by holding an annual Nadal invasion rehearsal festival, even if only governance can afford to celebrate that festival, and most tiny villages can't. During this festival, the number of uncaught messages getting routed to Abigail Thrun would then have informed the Queen that there would be a predictable failure of organizational design in the event of large-scale catastrophe in advance of that catastrophe actually occurring. If literally everybody with the knowledge to make a decision is dead, it gets routed to somebody who has to make a decision using insufficient knowledge. If a decision can be delayed, which class of decisions, by the way, does not include delaying telling the guy who started the last God War about the latest set of divine interventions targeting him, that bit could actually be important for all somebody knows, then that decision can be routed to some smarter or more knowledgeable person who will make the decision later, after they get resurrected. But, like, even in a case like that, there should be one single identifiable person whose job it would be to notice if the decision suddenly turned urgent and grab it out of the delay queue.
1: It all sounds obvious and practically impossible to do at the same time.
0: Keltham gets that Galarian doesn't have the incredibly convenient, universally connected devices that civilization uses to run all of its corporations and government. He gets that. But the fact that people were walking around knowing that Caden Kalian had intervened on his project, authorized to tell Keltham this if he asked, and the thing ended up waiting until he asked. Seems like the symptom of some deeper organizational misstructuring whose details Keltham cannot guess. It means that Cheliax is underperforming what should be possible to do, even with the technology that it has. It is plausible that Keltham should look at the administrative structure above himself, rip it apart, and put it back together, the way it would be put together in civilization. But the general mode of operation in which he still has never been invited to meet the site manager on this project, been told a budget for it, shown the names on the chain of command, leading up to Abregale, etc., all seem suggestive of some kind of motivated illegibility in which somebody somewhere thinks something bad will happen if Keltham can access all that info or they are incentivized against it by flaming farts know what kind of bizarre payoff function. He does not think this is because Cheliacs is plotting dark plots against him, to be clear, because if they were plotting, they would show him a fake organization above himself, rather than leaving him in a bizarre limbo, where he does not know who is actually managing this project. And his only actual conversation with anybody he knows to have any authority over it was that time he spent half an hour sitting next to the Queen of Cheliacs, watching her feed tiny crumbs of food to fish, and this is not a scalable solution.
1: The Queen did what? Carissa could tell him who is in charge—to Keltham, it's Maelol—but she thinks this might disrupt the momentum of his rant.
0: And in fact, now that Keltham thinks of it, an obvious guess is that nobody is managing this project, because Asmodeus said to set it up. So people in governance did that. But Asmodeus didn't say who should manage it. So nobody is. And everything going on here is actually being routed into a completely ad hoc system of random people— "'in governance, grabbing bits of authority "'and responding to his requests as he makes them, "'and there is apparently a site manager "'because this person has been mentioned to him, "'but there's nobody above that site manager, "'and so the site manager is hiding "'because he knows he won't be able to answer "'any of Keltham's questions. "'Which is, Keltham supposes, "'what project management and governance "'might very well end up looking like "'after subtracting six intelligence points "'from everyone and everything. "'Is he wrong?' Is anyone allowed to tell him if he's wrong? Is the person who would need to sign off on that on the Nadal front, is their failover replacement dead? And is there now a long, awkward silence while everybody in this room knows the correct answer to his question, but the person who needs to sign off on answering it is discarnate?
1: Should we volunteer answers to questions, or are the questions meant to be illustrative?
0: If you actually know and are allowed to tell me, please do.
1: The site manager is Farrar Mayol, His office is labeled on the maps they put up in the cafeteria. He's the person I go to when you want mice or something. I think he reports to someone in the church, probably a higher circle cleric, and probably someone at the front right now. They probably report to the queen and the grand high priestess.
0: If they're reporting to the queen and the grand high priestess, then they're not reporting to anybody. Pick one. To be clear, that advice was not directed at you personally. I will note, however, Carissa, that you do not, in fact, have any idea of who is above Ferrer, except that somewhere up there is the Queen and Grand High Priestess. It's actually pretty rare where I come from to not know who is your boss's boss. Maybe this is because you don't have the universally interconnected machines, but I really wouldn't think so. You have not actually disconfirmed the fallback hypothesis that what you do not know about does not exist and there is nothing above Ferrer but an amorphous cloud of individuals in governance whom Ferrer individually contacts each time he tries to make something happen on the site. Anyways, I think I am done with the main part of my rant that I needed to get out of myself. Any questions you expect the actual readers of this lecture will want answered. After that, by the way... And on reflection, maybe more urgently than resuming the math parts, I need to know who the ass is Caden Kylian in vastly greater detail.
1: No one else talks. This is obviously an authorized lies-only territory. Go on, Pilar. Claims that have been authorized about Caden kylean all true. He is a former human adventurer. History has it that he ascended on a drunken dare, which isn't the kind of thing that should be possible. His areas of concern are competition, exploration, sex, mind-altering substances, and revelry. His herald is a prostitute and former traveling companion. He tends not to seek out conflict with other gods, but is allied with Desna, Milani, Serenre, Shelin, and Torag. He has chillier relationships with the lawful gods, and it's generally understood that he and Asmodeus don't get along being diametrically opposed in alignment he doesn't have a holy book having never seen fit to inspire the writing of one there are rumors that he personally attends drunken festivities in the river kingdoms in his honor pilar will
2: repeat all that pretty flawlessly since she's had time to rehearse it including the part where she doesn't sound rehearsed
0: way gods can just show up to places looking human that is a thing that ever happens 20% probability that one of his girls is exactly that, if so.
2: Pilar has not been instructed in advance on how to answer that question. I'm not sure. I didn't think to ask about how many chances in 100 that it would be
3: true. Does anyone want to stop her from answering? Think, think. No? Gods can do most things, but they usually don't. When they manifest, looking like people, it's usually inside their divine realm. There's stories about gods manifesting in Galerian, but only during huge crises, and it's not clear to me from my reading that any of it must have really happened. Except that most books say that Aradyn was doing that when, as Modeus killed him, he died. Ione didn't go out of her way to collect information like that, or at least that's what she told herself. But in retrospect. Maybe she happened to be hanging out in sections of library where there were books talking about how vast and how ancient Golarian and other planes were.
0: So gods are easier to kill when they're manifested looking like people, and they only do that in their highly protected home where it's safe, or after they build what they think is a large enough coalition to protect them from other gods, or in massive emergency opportunities.
3: If there was any book that had that kind of information, it would be in the incredibly protected library of a 500-year-old Ninth Circle Wizard, I think. Which I can't borrow from, to be clear.
0: Ioni, what's Caden Kalian doing messing with my project? Best guess?
3: Ioni thinks about it. Both for real, and to give somebody else a chance to instruct her on that.
1: Cheliax's best guesses that Keltham is allowed to know are that Caden Kalian is trying to support the project in some way that may only be clear in retrospect that Caden Kalian lost a dare of some kind, that Caden Kalian is subject to some pre-existing agreement which manifests like this, or that he's just not acting in a goal-oriented way, sometimes chaotic gods don't. Ione can add her own speculation if it'd make sense in
3: Altercheliac's. Some of that doesn't sound like things a random project lawful researcher should be saying. It could be that he lost a dare. It could be that there's an old bargain. It could be that he's just being chaotic good and literally doesn't have a goal because chaotic gods are sometimes like that. Or it could be that somewhere at the end of everything that happens here is a lot of exploring, competing, and sex and revelry and drugs. Not necessarily for us personally, to be clear. I'm more the bookish type. Pilar, did they say anything more to
2: you? The clerics who examined me said that everyone's current guess was that Caden Kalian is being, uh, cooperative, not least because of the bit where I was there to step in front of a sword at the right time, which is why it seemed like a better idea to leave me here than pull me as a security risk. Whatever gods think is supposed to happen as a result of this project, Asmodeus likes it, your god likes it, Nethys likes it, the current guess is that either Caden... Caelian likes it too, or Asmodeus bargained with him to help. The degree to which this itself is incredibly odd and alarming is not to be said out
0: loud. So Caden Caelian is in favor of civilization, because people will be having more fun. Okay, that's better news than I was expecting. It sounds like he might be one of the gods that's just all the way on board. That makes sense of why Caden Caelian, but not why Candy. Were there any speculations about why Candy?
2: I would guess that if you're the kind of god that Caden Kalian is, it's easiest to act on the world by giving out candy, even if that requires a weird, complicated, chaotic plan instead of a simpler one. Wait a minute. Was that her guessing? That sounded like something Pilar shouldn't have known herself.
0: Lovely. Just wonderful. Say, Pilar, I'd say that for putting up with this... I deserve not just any cookie, but a big cookie with precisely printed frosting that happens to explain what's going on here, and what Caden Kalian wants from our project, and what he's trying to do with it, and also what's the name of my god.
2: There is the weight of a cookie in her hand, and somebody had better be ready to cast an illusion really fast. The frosting is just decorated, roughly, as a cheerful, smiling face. Unless somebody already casts the illusion. Pilar silently hands over the cookie.
0: Chaotic good, huh? Yes. Cookie of plus-four intelligence lasting one hour.
2: Nope. Pilar contemplates how this thought occurred to Keltham within seconds, and to her, not at all over days. It probably has something to do with Dothilanism, but how would there be a law for something like that?
0: Then I suppose Project Lawful will continue on, with snacks catered by Caden Kaelian. Thank you, Caden Kylian. The magnitude of your contribution there seems difficult to understate, though I do appreciate the Pilar save during the attack, to be clear. I'm going to take a brief break and then get back to math. Fifteen minutes, say. He's got to use the washroom, for one thing. Actually, he should take a bite of the cookie, just in case it contains edible knowledge. Nope. It's a good cookie, though. Keltham departs.
2: Do you remember Elysium? Meritzel asks Pilar. Did they explain anything there? Mostly they, I thought at the time, tried really hard to talk me into staying. At the very end, after I said no, they told me that the whole point was so that I'd be certain of myself and my choices. I forget how they put it exactly. Said I was going to be used for Lord Asmodeus's interests, not against him, because good would mostly rather not use people against the ones they're truly loyal to. The Grand High Priestess thought that someone like them might maybe be telling the truth about that to someone like me. But it doesn't mean Caden is on Asmodeus's side. He could be plotting to destroy Cheliax and then I prevent a new world wound from opening in the center. Some other things happened since then that do look more like Caden Kalian cooperating. Is Pilar supposed to say anything about those?
1: These girls don't need to know the other things.
2: Safe topics of conversation are hard to find, so the girls mostly review their notes while they wait for Keltham
3: to return.
0: Keltham is now here. Perhaps he was really always with you all along. So math, yeah. When we'd previously seen our plucky heroines, they had just realized that everything, or at least all the positive real numbers, can be seen as being made out of continuous quantities of 2S being multiplied together. A 3 is a bit more than 1912 of a 2, so 1, 12 more than 1, and a half 2s. So diminishing something via multiplying by 8, 9 is taking a bit more than 1, 6 of a 2 out of its bag. Predictions chain together by multiplication. If you spin a fair coin once, the probability of it coming up abrogale is 1 half. Knowing whether it came up abrogale or text doesn't change the probability on the next spin, so the chance of two sequential abergales is one-quarter, the chance of three such is one-eighth. Each time you say one-half, and the event happens, that's like taking another two out of the bag, containing your total prediction over all the events. Where, to be clear, your bag started with zero-two-S in it, or probability one. After guessing fifty-one-hundred three times at three fair coin flips, Your bag would contain minus three two s, or a probability of one eight. What if you predicted Abigail with two three probability instead, on one spin? Well, if the coin comes up, Abragale, good for you. You've only lost... how many two s, roughly? Raise your hand once you've got an estimate.
2: Keltham may eventually notice that all his students assiduously say the queen, even when repeating after him otherwise.
1: How many twos in two? One. How many two s in 3, 19 twelfths s-ish. So 1, 19 twelfths s equals sign, 7 twelfths, you've lost 7 twelfths of a 2. I'm confused about what losing twos corresponds to. You lose them when you're right.
0: Hold that thought just a little longer. If you predict queen with probability two-thirds, then if you get text instead, as happens half the time, you thereby predicted that with probability one-three, though actually we'd say that it's a tiny bit less than 2, 3, and 1, 3, because maybe the coin could land on its edge, or just mysteriously vanish, but leaving that aside for now. If you predict queen with 2, 3 probability, and the coin comes up text, how many 2s do you lose?
3: 19 twelfths, says Tonya.
0: Yep, so if you lose 7 twelfths 50 out of 100 times, and 19 twelfths 50 out of 100 times, how many 2s do you lose on average each round? Thirteen twelfths better or worse than if you just predicted one-half every round.
3: That depends on whether losing twos is good or bad, but presumably it's meant to be bad since this is a dumber way to guess. You lose twelve-twelfths s of a two each time you predict one-half, so you lose one-twelfth of a two less that way, which is better if losing two s is
0: bad. So would you agree that this scoring function gives you more points, or rather, has you lose fewer two s? the more probability you assign to whatever happened. Gives you the same final number of points, or 2S lost, whether you're predicting two coin spins at once or predicting them separately in different rounds. And at least in this particular example we checked, it wasn't possible to expect to score more average points or lose fewer 2S by giving an answer other than reality's answer for how often something happens.
3: Yep, that does seem true. Why does that still feel like a surprise, even though she predicted it way earlier? And it's the only scoring function like that which can possibly exist, Asmodia states.
0: Not exactly. Counting lost 3s will also work, or counting lost 5s, but that just scales the number of points you win. There's around 19 twelfths of a 2 and a 3, so if you know how many 3s you lost, you can convert to how many 2s you lost. It's not so much that there's only one function— as that all the functions like that are basically doing the same thing and have outputs that are trivial to convert back and forth. The law, in this case, is not an exact function or an exact number of points. It's a structure, such that every solution shares that structure and does almost exactly the same thing. Like a simpler and clearer version of the way that lots of logics are ultimately equivalent to first-order logic in what they end up deriving.
1: And you can use this to figure out who's the best at predicting things?
0: If everyone is predicting the same questions using the same knowledge, if your sole goal is to end with as many 2S as possible, and you get to pick whether or not to play the game, the only winning move is not to play, so you can end up with the same 0-2S you started with. Otherwise, you start with nothing, and then lose more every time you try to predict anything that isn't absolutely certain. And the best you can do is losing the least 2 s possible, which will always still involve losing some. It's just that if you don't match reality, you do even worse. So yes, if that was a game with, like, actual penalties and no other reward for playing it, nobody would play that game if they had a choice.
1: I would, Pilar says. Kinky, says Yaisa. I mean, presumably you have people do this for outcomes of decisions they are already making— For accountability, not as a game they play for fun.
0: Well, Keltham says, speaking less rapidly than usual, because some of his processing just got diverted to a sub-thread. We can, and do, play it for fun, and do that our whole lives, in fact. It just involves a mindset where you can try to do as well as possible each time you confront a prediction challenge, without feeling like you're losing something, in virtue of doing less than perfectly. The most obvious thing to match yourself against there is other people's predictions. Pilar predicts one number, Yasa predicts another. We see who did better, just like if they were playing some other competitive game whose in-game rewards sum to zero across all sides, but whose positive extra is the fun people have from playing it, or their pride in showing their skills. There's a version of that game which Dothilani play. Before they're ready to go all the way to prediction markets, where we put up a sheet of paper on the wall, or just use walls and digitation, I guess, and write down a question, and then people who think the current probability is wrong can write down a different probability underneath and be scored by how much they gained or lost relative to the previous guess. I'm not quite sure we're ready yet, but once we are, we'll probably just start doing that over all the place, whenever somebody comes up with an interesting question that will actually settle in a few days. But I think the most basic point Lost 2S aren't actually like sending out the merchant ships to the wrong place. They're a measure of how well you do, and you do better by losing fewer. But the fact that the numbers always look negative don't mean you're doing poorly. If you're losing few enough 2S, you can send your merchant ships where they need to go, and that's the reward for playing.
1: The students are nodding. This feels like a really big part of Evil Doth Elan, Accountability true and perfect and impartial, handed down from reality itself, impossible to rebel against or lie to, competition for its own sake, to prove oneself worthy of the power to send ships—there's something there, though also some heresies to navigate around.
0: The more mature version of this is where people are betting money against each other inside a common market, forming a prediction market, and the places where prices settle then become civilization's way of knowing what civilization knows. If this project were running inside civilization, there would already be a prediction market over what its outcomes were, like whether we succeed in our technological revolution or start another war, and every time something interesting happened, the prices would shift, and that would reflect civilization knowing more about our project's prospects. Or, I mean, in this case it would be a secret government prediction market, but then that's the government's way of knowing secret things. I wish we had one, actually. I'd have loved to see what happened to the prices when Pilar started handing out Caden, Calian Candy. People who make massive amounts of money on prediction markets by being righter than everyone are incredibly rare in civilization and they're respected about as much any other kind of person who exists. A legislator is significantly less respectable than Nemamal, who beat the prediction markets her whole life, to the point where she could only trade anonymously because nobody would knowingly bet against her. Nobody takes that name anymore. She owns it now. It's hers forever. There's nine legislators at any given time, and there were five people like Nemamel over the course of civilization's remembered history. Mirenre keeps working at his desk and doesn't sneeze at all because this isn't that kind of universe.
1: Is it about intelligence or something else? Is it hereditary? Was she able to describe it?
0: Every kind of skill civilization knows how to describe is one that thousands or millions of people learn. Namamal couldn't have been what she was, noticeably better than all her competitors, if she'd known how to describe all of what she was doing with no bits left over. She passed on some of her skills and made the markets themselves better, but Nemamel had no successor and no replacement in the domains she'd mastered most, when she went into cryo-suspension, the deep cold of suspended time, waiting on the future to awaken her. It was one of her classic, Your Language Doesn't Have the Word, an acerbic disclaimer of how far you fell short of your own standards in the course of impressing somebody else that people who were actually competent and understood what they were doing could just teach their skills to others so everyone would have them. You only become Nemimal by failing to understand yourself that well, or by being born with good heritage that isn't anything you hold in your mind's own hands and can teach to others, so why be impressed by that, was her acerbic disclaimer.
1: Can you steal Doth Ilanus with a wish? Carissa wonders. It wouldn't even be a good idea, necessarily. One Dath-Elani is probably all that Cheliax can handle. But could you? Are the acerbic disclaimers important to what she was doing? Should we be making acerbic disclaimers like that? Says Peranza.
0: Probably sort of. Suppose I put it this way. Clearly, I should be telling you more about dath Ilani heroes. Heroes. People who are incredibly impressive. Because dath Ilani don't grow up to be skilled by trying to be Keltham. They grow up trying to be Nemimal. But how does Nemamal grow up to be Nemamal? She was better than all her living competitors. There was nobody she could imitate to become that good. There are no gods in Dathilan. Then who does Nemamal look up to, to become herself? And the answer is, she looked up to an image that existed in her own imagination, better than all her competitors, and also far better than herself. The person who would have executed all her own skills perfectly, been everything she was but better not something like Nethys that knows the answers just because, but something less powerful than that, which knows them for reasons, and by being clever. If she'd ever stopped to congratulate herself on being better than everyone else, wouldn't she then have stopped? Or that's what I remember her being quoted as saying. Which frankly doesn't make that much sense to me. To me, it seems you could reach the better-than-everybody key milestone, celebrate that, and then keep going. But I am not, Namamal, and maybe there's something in there that I haven't understood yet. It didn't seem like a kind of pride that was being offered to me then, in retrospect, looking back. It was the pride of the very smart people who are smarter than the other people, that they look around themselves, and even if they aren't the best in the world yet, there's still nobody in it who seems worthy to be their competitor, even the people who are still better than them aren't enough better. So they set their eyes somewhere on the far horizon where no people are, and walk towards it knowing they'll never reach it. But now we sort of are the very smart people now, aren't we? Or trying to be that. And maybe I understand a little more, now that I think on it again. I mean, if I try to imagine myself looking at Galarian and being like, Ah, yes, I have done better than Galarian, Yea, me. That would just be stupid. No offense, probably Nemammal was that, but for Dathilan... To her, it was like Galarian is to me. And that's why when people congratulated her on being better than everybody, she was all, Stop that. You only like me that much because you're thinking about it all wrong, compared to some greater vision of civilization that was only in her own imagination.
1: Keltham doesn't aspire to be like Contessa Lrelatha when he grows up. That would be aiming too low. Maybe even trying to build evil Doth elan is aiming too low she's not actually sure what would be aiming higher, though. Or maybe the idea is not to aim high, the aim is just to imagine what you'd get if everybody was doing everything right all the time. If everybody was doing everything right all the time, as Modius's weaknesses could be taught in schools. So smart children grew up thinking how to strengthen him, and they would think thoughts that were actually a good idea— instead of in this world where aspexia rugatone seemed to genuinely consider it plausible that it's better for most people to be stupid lest they trip over their own cleverness. If everybody were doing everything right all the time, then when Keltham had arrived, they would not have needed to lie to him. They'd have known how to explain themselves to him, because they'd have known how to explain themselves at all. What if not everybody was doing everything right all the time— but Carissa personally was. Then she'd have noticed all the things she didn't understand sooner, and gotten executed for heresy. No, she'd be like Pilar, impossible to accuse of heresy because none of her thoughts twist away from other things. Why did Asmodeus pick Carissa rather than Pilar? Anyway, By the time Keltham landed, she'd understand the 30-word explanation of hell that makes it not upsetting to good people and they wouldn't need to be running an elaborate deception. And if there was occasion for it, she'd be better at it because of understanding how all the world is deeply interconnected. No, no, that's not good enough either. Aim higher.
2: Literally every person in this classroom is already somebody's oracle or cleric or has sold their soul and he can't maneuver any more of the way's followers here because of Atolman's edict. Why is his life like this?
0: What was
3: that about the deep cold and the future awakening her? It sounds like
1: things that happen with epic heroes here. There's some way for Namamal to come back if she's really needed?
0: Not epic heroes, no. There's no gods in Dathilan, and no afterlife. It doesn't mean that we just let everybody become the equivalent of getting eaten by Abaddon. Food kept cold spoils more slowly. Maybe you don't know that here. If there's no cold-making machines, but like ice freezes into a shape and keeps it, if you cool people down far enough, everything stops, and nothing decays from there. And they can wait, for however long it takes, until civilization has become powerful enough to bring them back. It's not as simple as I'm making it sound. You first need to cool people down to above the freezing point of water, cycle as much water as possible out of their body, and add protectants to what's left. But to do this as well as they possibly can is something to which civilization has bent all of its will and all of its eyes and all of its cleverness. About a hundred people every year die for real. The air-traveling machine I was on, when it crashed is going to make that be around 200 this year, probably. Everyone else goes into the cold where time stops, to wait it out, and awaken to whatever the future brings, when civilization becomes that powerful. There are far prediction markets that say it's going to happen eventually, with what I would think would be unreasonably high probability, for something that far out, except that those markets are flagged, with keepers being allowed to trade in them, Whatever secrets the Keepers keep, they would be turned to the purpose of protecting the preserved, if they were turned to anything at all. So I guess that number reflects what the Keepers would do if they had to, that nobody but them knows they can do. So no, Namamal can't be brought back in an emergency, we just don't have the tech to do that yet, and no magic. But it also wasn't because she was epic. It's just what happens to everyone in civilization when the first part of their story finishes and pauses for a time. Someday, the far prediction markets say, everyone will be reunited. Everyone except Keltham. But cases like his are statistically improbable, and people shouldn't dwell on them.
1: How sure are they?
0: 97% and without calibration training. I expect you have no idea how flaming ridiculous that is for a prediction about the future, but it's really super-heated ridiculous. Apparently the Keepers think they could make 30 completely different statements like that and be wrong once, and them being the Keepers, they've already thought of every single possible reason worth considering for why that might not be true. And that's not the probability of the tech working. It's not the probability of revival being possible in principle. It's not the probability that civilization makes it that far. It's not the probability of the preserved being kept safe that long. It's the final probability of the preserved actually coming back.
1: Nod. Not as sure as hell, but really good for no magic. Is it possible that what they secretly know is magic?
0: Maybe, if there's something you can easily do with magic and plus four SD Thinkumpf that destroys Dathilan and can't be opposed by more and smarter people wielding more magic though there's really only one hint that there's been anything that weird in that whole universe, and it's the screening of the past. Still, one such hint is noticeably more than zero, but one of the few things that is publicly known about the screen is that it doesn't reflect anything weird and concealed about the true character of physical law. Would that still be an honest statement if magic were ultimately made of math, which in some sense it does have to be? Haven't really thought it through, it seems more plausible now than a week ago, surely, but it wouldn't have seemed very plausible a week ago. I'd also expect something the size of magic to make the Keepers less certain, not more. Because if there's magic around, then somebody could blow up all of Doth ilan with a misstated wish spell, in which case the Preserved don't come back.
1: Nod. Maybe Doth ilan has gods. She's not sure why you'd have secret gods, but she does think gods make worlds less likely to blow
0: up. Seems like a natural place to call it for lunchtime, and maybe break for some wizard spells practiced by me after that. This ended up not being the law of probability, as it has apparently turned out. This has just been the law of scoring predictions, and the lesson wasn't complete. I haven't gone through the calculus to show you that, for every chance in reality, you get the best expected score by naming that chance as your estimate. But the law of scoring does get you far enough to know what a probability is, and to start practicing the skills of putting probabilities on things and have some idea of how well you're doing at that. Oh, and Keltham will write down all the log2 values for some landmark probabilities from 99% down to 0.0001%. You sure do lose a lot of bits by saying 0.0001% for something that goes and happens.
3: A cheerful gaggle of girls get up and go to lunch.
0: If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreoncom AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.